Hello! Today we return at last to the fairy and fantasy class. When last we met, we were just finishing the medieval portion of the course with Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. In this class, we launch into the modern era and begin our discussion of some of Andrew Lang's fairy stories from the Blue Fairy Book. But first, I couldn't help glancing back at Sir Gowan and the Green Knight one more time. Okay, uh, before we do, uh, b- before we move on to Andrew Lang, I-, I said at the end of class last time that I wanted to come back and finish our discussion about the end of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, and I would like to do that now. Um, what I want to come back to, we were looking at some factors. We ended at the, at the very end of class looking at the difference, or what appears to be the difference, or the implied difference, between how things went when Sir Gowan was the one being tested and how things would have gone or might have gone had Arthur been the one swinging the axe, as he almost was, and it seems likely was intended to have been. Um, But now I want to be thinking thinking about that, but also, of course, with what we have much more evidence for, i.e. what really happens to Gowan when he is tested, what can we see or what conclu- conclusions can we make about the fairy motivations? To put, it, put, to put this question really bluntly and perhaps crudely, um, is Morgan Le Fay Arthur's enemy in this poem? She doesn't seem to be any friend to Guinevere. Um, but if we can kind of, you know, as, and as I said last time, that, but that itself is at least potentially ambivalent information, right? If we are assumed to be operating within the standard Guinevere is an adulteress plot, which was very much tied with the Arthurian tradition, uh, Morgan Le Fay being an enemy of Guinevere's is not necessarily the same thing as saying that she's an enemy to Arthur and his court. I thought Morgan wasn't always bad. Well, no. I mean, she's often a problem. But, but I want to focus here, here in this poem. From what we see, from what we're, to, we're told at the end, she was masterminding this. Does this amount to a challenge to Arthur's court? And if not, what else? How do we see this operating? Yeah, Jordan? I've heard a great deal of people cursing that bit, but one thing I do think that is an interesting cue that we'll hear is that the, the Green Knight, who it seems to be a pretty good guy, likes her. And it, it could be that he's being overconfident, and you know, things are possibly trusted. We don't really know the sort of reveal he might. Right. But it's just really possible he considers him a kindred spirit with his own reality. And, I mean, and he basically is, he sort of admits, I don't know if this is quite the right language to use, but essentially to being her accessory, that is, her power was what seemed to be behind, you know, like the whole greenness and decapitation thing and that kind of stuff. So he's certainly going along with her in very direct way, not just sort of by hosting her and kind of being affiliated with her, but he's he's seems to be quite voluntarily a part of what amounts, what we're told amounts to her plot. And I agree. Although we never hear a word from Morgan, I mean, the old woman never opens her mouth, at least she's never quoted uh, in the poem, so we don't get almost anything directly from her. We get quite a bit from Bertilak. And I should mention, as a side note, um, there's some debate about the spelling of Bertilak's name that is the T 
in Bertillac. Um, in the manuscript, it, some people argue that it's a C and that his name is actually Bersalak, uh, and others argue that it's a T. Uh, those letters look much more similar uh, in medieval manuscript uh, writing than they do in modern print. Um, so I just, in case you ever hear him referred to as Bersalak in other places, I just want to explain why that is. Anyway, um, well, from what we see of Sir Bertillac, he seems to be, I agree with Jordan, a good guy. Not just a fun guy, but but a good guy. When he assesses Gowan at the end, Gowan disagrees with him, but notice that he's not, he does not seem to be operating under an entirely alien set of precepts. He's testing Gowan, but one of the things that's interesting about the tests is that the tests seem to line up with Gowan's own accepted moral code, right? There's not any question, it seems, within this poem, of them putting to him sort of questions that he can't or won't answer. That is, they're, they're operating on totally different systems. Both of them, it seems, agree on what complete passing and complete failure would look like. Their only disagreement is about how big a deal it is that he failed. Both of them agree that he failed. And both of them seem to agree, well, that might be too much to say, that they both agree on, on how or why he fails. But... Um, but anyway, both agree that there's a small failure. Well, the difference is the Green Knight thinks it's a small failure. Gowan thinks it's a huge failure, right? But they're speaking the same language, I would say. Another fact to remember, something that we observed at the time, and I think it's important to come back to. Um, how did he find, How did he end up at this castle? Asking for um, somewhere to go to mass. Yeah, asking whom? God. Yeah, God and, and Mary. You see, it was, it was an answer to prayer. That is, we saw this sort of, uh, I don't know exactly what to call it, um, synchronization. That's not the right word. Anyway, uh, between what God is doing and what the fairies are doing. They, I mean, he prays and wham, this fairy castle shows up. And then he goes into the fairy castle and it's a very comfortable Christian place. Nice place to have mass. Everybody is perfectly orthodox and there's a confessor there, fortunately, right? They've got their priest there to hear his confession. I mean, it's, again... And I say this to emphasize again, it does not seem that they're operating under totally different systems there. The fairies seem to be, at least in, the, in their appearance, working with God. Now, of course, that doesn't absolutely prove that they're not satanic and therefore just trying to deceive him. It's exactly the kind of thing that the devil would do and does do, especially if you're on a grail quest, say. Um... There's more than one occasion on which the devil makes a perfectly good-appearing castle appear, usually full of women with scandalous intentions towards the chaste and virtuous and belabored knight in question. Um, That's one of the ways you can tell when it's a satanic castle. But wait, oops, this castle also has a beautiful woman with sketchy intentions towards him, doesn't it? (laughs) 
Maybe that was a bad example. Or not. See, I mean, that's, that's the question, right? You can see it in a couple different ways. You can see this as a way to, as Morgan trying to undermine the court, right? That she's actively trying to corrupt this noble knight and humble them. And the original plan was to humble Arthur, possibly kill him. I mean, Gowan's death was a very real possibility. In fact, under the circumstances, it might almost have seemed likelier than not. I mean, if he weren't a pearl among peas, if he were just another pea, presumably he'd have not passed. I think it seems likely that the majority of men would not have passed that particular test under those circumstances. At least the poem seems to, I mean, the Green Knight certainly is, seems to be operating under that principle in his commendation at the end. Um, so, temptress, scheme to undermine and overthrow Arthur's court, to humble its pride. Remember the context at beginning and end Troy, Rome. Arthur's court, pinnacle of human civilization, of human virtue, or not. <laughs> I think I managed to put this in terms to guarantee that no one's going to want to uh, actually answer this question at this point. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> Jordan, go ahead. You kind of wait. That, that's not the question I wanted. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, a depth sidestep. All right, all right, got it. I actually have to point out that the Christian theme of social theories is not unique to the story as well as the movement. TMO is really, you know, Christian ideology. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the theory in the way that's now explicitly about Christian ideology to prove a point. Yeah. So the idea that theories could be in pursuit of God, or at least, uh, at least God's ideals, is, is both from constraining the story. I think that's an excellent point, Jordan, and it's a good thing to remember. It is tempting sometimes, and sometimes modern readers do, I think, really oversimplify this kind of a situation. That is, there's a temptation to read these medieval romances as if what we're really talking about here is there's this Christian thing and there's this pagan thing, and both of those Christian and pagan elements are in this story, and they're kind of being forced together and they don't fit or whatever. And I I agree, I don't think that that's exactly what we see here. Um, the fairies do not seem to be, in really any of the stories, operating totally outside of the Christian world. The one in Sir Orfeo, that's, I would say, it's sort of most unclear, the relationship between the king of fairies and the whole sort of Christian spiritual setup. Um, not that I think even there it's obvious that there's a that there's a contradiction or a conflict, but but it's sort of least explicitly connected. But I agree, the fairies that we've seen seem to be comfortable operating within that system. These stories seem to be comfortable integrating those systems. Now, again, though, they get the problem with Morgan Le Fay is that she can fit on either side. Uh, that is. Just because you're integrated with a Christian system doesn't mean that you're good. There are bad guys in the Christian system, too. Right? Again, that's why she could be Satan or a minion of Satan. And I know that that sounds 
melodramatic, to put it that way, right? She could always be Satan, right? I, I mean, I, I know, I know. Um, um, you guys are probably way too young to be thinking of Saturday Night Live when I say that, but I can't help it. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, see, I can tell by your puzzled expressions that you are. Don't worry about it. Um, the point is that it's actually, I think, although it sounds kind of funny to us, it wouldn't be. And as I said, there are precedents for this kind of thing. Um, there are t- you know, when, you, when you are telling a story in the Middle Ages, a, a story, especially a story about moral testing, the devil is usually involved, in fact. I mean, especially if you're telling something like a morality play, um, what you are normally, the story that you are normally hearing or telling is one of, you know, good spiritual forces and evil spiritual forces at war over human souls. So if what we have here is, in fact, the moral testing and possible, you know, temptation and corruption of a good person, to a medieval reader, it would seem perfectly natural that some kind of explicit, you know, demonic or satanic character would be involved in that temptation. That's one of Satan's jobs. So, again, I know it sounds a little bit funny to us, but I don't think it would have seemed funny to them. And there are people who, uh, there are some critics who really like this approach and especially will, will do lots of things with the color green and present lots of evidence that the color green is connected with Satan in medieval iconography. I've never been 100% sold on that line of reasoning, I have to say. Um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting uh, and it's possible. What do you say? At the end of the day, anybody want to... Anybody want to come down one side or the other? Perhaps it will help if I ask it in a more squishy and touchy-feely kind of way. <laughs> Let's see. Does Morgan Le Fay and the, and, and the actions of the Green Knight, do they feel satanic? <laughs> Does this seem like what we're experiencing here is the titanic clash of good versus evil and the frustration of evil? Now I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting head shakes. And exactly that degree of head shake, uh, which is, seems designed to discourage me from calling on you individually. But, uh, <laughs> Kat, go ahead. It definitely doesn't seem like an all-out battle of our souls. I always saw it more, and this might just be my unfamiliarity with um, medieval literature as a whole, but I saw it more as just like, Morgan being mischievous. Like, I'm going to send this test uh, to, to Camelot. They think they're so high and mighty on their big, shiny throne, and they think they're all powerful. Well, I'm going to show them that they aren't. But... And that's interesting. Uh, I, you know, it would be, and of course, if King Arthur ends up getting decapitated in front of the entire court, uh, like, you know, I guess mischief managed, right? I mean, that's a pretty big, uh, a pretty big piece of mischief there. But, um, uh, but, but still not, I think, off the table as far as that goes. Um, it does seem sort of more like that. Um, it could be, I think, and here I'm extrapolating from what you're saying, so correct me if I'm wrong. It could be something like a rebuke without being, you know, an attempt to undermine and overthrow. Does that, does that, does that sound right? Matt, go ahead. Well, uh, 
In the Old Testament, my Savior called it was kind of Satan's job to perform these tests. Like uh, thinking back to the book of Job, where, you know, if there's a really virtuous man, it's Satan who has to go and mess with him, make sure he's actually virtuous. So in this sense, uh, Morgan Bay and Green Knight are literally taking on the role of Satan, which is the only real role we see him play in the Bible other than Brandon Clinton. Right. Well, at least I would say in the Old Testament. Um, yeah, yeah. The, uh, no, I mean, that's, it's an interesting parallel, parallel and I'm, interest, I'm interested that you mentioned it. Um, though, to, uh, to, to give, I don't often offer this, I don't often utter this sentence, to give Satan credit uh, in, that, <laughs> in, in that book, uh, it's not Satan's idea, uh, that is, to test Job. It's, it's God's idea. Um, well... God points him out, and then Satan is like, well, you know, if you let me beat on him, he, he probably would change his mind, and God says, you know, you know, bring it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, 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 that parallel makes, makes a lot of sense to me, and I think that there are ways in which we can see, um, I think that we can constructed in that way. Um, we can see that kind of a parallel. Baskin, go ahead. I thought it was a glorified cat-loving between Morgan and Shane and Guinevere because Morgan has had this long time running thing where she meets Guinevere throughout our third adventure. And I think it was, you know, it was a... And you have this constant run of feminine dominant scenes throughout the whole thing where, you know, Morgan's proving that she and her female superiority is greater than the men of the court by, you know, tricking all of them essentially to, you know, show, show up with them here. Yeah, and, you know, the, the thing that I, I um, what that makes me think of um, is actually to sort of take that and sort of shift it a little bit. Think back to Lanval. Right there too, we had clearly the, well, a feminine rivalry, not on the part of the, except of course, Triamore doesn't. She's not putting herself forward. In fact, she very much, very strongly requests not to be put into competition directly. Though when she is, she, she, she does it. She completes it. Right, um, and the reason I think I think it's very important for us to remember uh, Lanval and the way in which. Lanfall has established that kind of paradigm, which I agree with thinking of the two female figures. Um, and it is so interesting. And, and always, to me, at this point in the poem, sounds so random. Guinevere has been such a non-character in this poem. She gets, like, two references the whole time. And then to be told at the end, it was all about Guinevere. It's like, what? That doesn't even make any sense. Like, who are we talking about? Who is Guinevere in this poem? I don't even know who Guinevere is in this poem. That is, I mean, there's so many versions of Guinevere. Sometimes she's really great. Sometimes, as in Lanfall, she's horrible. And she doesn't seem to be that. I, but I have no idea what she is. We have almost no data on her. But... Um, but anyway, so that, that, that is actually, that amounts to, I'm, 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 I'm trying to suggest, support for this idea that we get this kind of out of nowhere, like, female, I'm not sure if rivalry is quite right, but anyway, conflict between Morgan and Guinevere. And it, 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 it inescapably makes me think of the, the, the feminine conflict that we get between Triamore and, uh, and Guinevere in, in Lanfall. And there... 
I think that parallel is especially important because there, what happens at the end of Landfall is exactly what we also do see to some extent, or at least from one perspective, happening here in Sir Gowan too. That is, we are told, we are reminded at the beginning and end that King Arthur's court is the pinnacle of human civilization, right? You know, that this is you know, this great tradition, this is great. This is, and here we have fairy coming into it and serving as a kind of touchstone. Remember the insult, the deadliness of the insult with Guinevere was not... The insult which made, you know, uh, she tried to seduce me adulterously irrelevant. Like, it was so bad it made that very serious charge irrelevant was the least serving woman in Triamor's court is more beautiful than Guinevere herself. That is, the, the very lowest rung of the hierarchy in the fairy world is higher than the highest point of the hierarchy in the human world. This is how incomparable these two things are. And the effect is humbling and seems appropriately humbling. And so this, cat, I'm coming back also to what you were saying before too, that that does seem to be functioning here. If we think beyond just Sir Gowan and the effect on Sir Gowan, but on the Arthurian court as a whole, that seems to be one potential impact of this to say, hey, um, remember, people, remember who you are, right? Which is, at the end of the day, flawed mortals. Even Sir Gawain, excellent as he turns out to be, pearl among peas, is still flawed. Yeah, Jess? That's what I was going to say. I felt like I struggled a little bit with pinpointing where Morgan lies on that spectrum of crazy, evil, or whatever she may be. But at the end, when um, Wayne returns and admits everything that he's done, and everyone's kind of like, oh, but that's okay, because you're alive, and we're all human, and we could all make that mistake. That, to me, was the point, and I wish so much that there was an insight from Morgan coming after that, but I feel like that's where you could see... Like, her with a crystal ball watching them, doing the whole, like, evil laugh, and this was what it's all about, and you didn't get it. Right, right. Or, like, I'm still better than you because he made a mistake, and you're all at this ridiculous level of accepting it as okay. Right, right. Yeah, that, that at the end, even at the very end of the poem, sort of the joke is still on them, and the joke is exactly that they don't even get the message, that they're not even getting, that the message should be, look how flawed you are. Remember who you are. And they're like, this proves our awesomeness, right? And and Gowan's awesomeness. We are awesomer than ever. Uh, No, people. And and that, in a sense, actually makes them even, makes them even more flawed, right? If, If that disjunction is there, that is the disjunction of their understanding, but if it's not there for us, then we still get that message, even if they don't. In fact, because they don't, right? In their not getting it, it's reinforced to us. And I think that that's really, that that's really interesting, um, sort of suggesting in the end that the only people who really get it at the end of the day are Morgan and us, <laughs> right? Everybody else, everybody else is missing the point. And with Morgan, we just have to sort of speculate that she's getting it, but it kind of seems uh, that she probably would. No, that makes sense. I mean, I find that... I find that uh, I find that really appealing, appealing especially because it helps anyway to make sense of that kind of lack of resolution at the end. Um, it wouldn't be... 
we like uh, exposition and explication in medieval literature. It wouldn't have been at all beyond the pale for Morgan herself to appear at the court at the end and like give a long speech explaining all of what was going on. Uh, that's a kind of thing that happens. Um, or at least to have somebody explain it, hermit somebody, right? Um, but, but it's not. And the way that it's kind of left there, and again, the reason, I th- the reason I always feel this sense of, well, this lack of resolution at the end of this poem is that that's really uncommon. We don't get that kind of thing very often. Um, in medieval romance, they like to tie things together. They, they enjoyed that. Um, not that. Not that everything had perfect closure. In fact, you know, many works are unfinished and things, but anyway, speaking of closure and unfinished, I should probably move on to Lang before we get a full day behind without even trying. Um, but I, I, the ending of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, I think, is sufficiently important and interesting, um, not only to assign you to write papers on it, but also to, uh, um, to talk about it a little bit more. Um, let me offer a very brief defense for skipping over so many hundreds of years that we have skipped over to uh, the late 19th century here. Um, Of course, if we were trying to be very thorough, what we would do is we would go and we would read now some Renaissance accounts and we would look at sort of the shifts that happen towards uh, uh, towards what what Tolkien called pigwidgeonry, uh, based on the play by Drayton uh, called Pigwidgeon. Pigwidgeon was one of the first and most famous of the like little sprites who rides around on bugs and hides within flowers and things like that. Um, and uh, anyway, what what Tolkien called pigwidgeonry and 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 I call Tinkerbellism, um, <laughs> but. Anyway, um, and, and then to, to look to you know to look at these sort of these stories as they develop, there are two reasons why I'm not doing that. Three, three, three reasons why I'm not doing that. Um, one is that we don't have enough time, and the second is that I find a lot of those stories that come in the middle really horrible, and uh, I would find it painful to spend a lot of time reading them and talking about them. Um, Just to be perfectly honest, that's the one that I almost forgot to mention, but I have to confess that it's true. The third is um, that I actually think it would be, in a sense, a little bit misleading. Misleading because it's tempting. You you may remember, probably you don't, a brief little struggle I had with word choice back in the first day of class when I stopped myself before describing the progress of fairy stories as the evolution of fairy stories from from medieval romance through to modern fantasy. And the reason that I stopped myself, and I said at the time that that's not really a very fair, a very good metaphor to use to describe it, um, I think that if we were to read more of the things that happen in the interim, it might perhaps lead to the kind of impression that the, that, the, that the development had been, in a sense, an evolutionary change. That is, you know, an author, one author writes a story, and then another author reads that story and writes another story that's kind of like it but somewhat different, and then another author reads that story and does the same thing. That would be something that would be, in fact, like an evolutionary process. But I don't think that that's what happened. That doesn't seem to me at all... Um, a fair way to describe things, that these things follow 
sort of very different movements, movements in culture and movements in literature, and there are a whole series of leaps and going backwards and people doing different stuff. Um, and so I actually, I think that I could probably, you know, make up a syllabus which sort of shows like the, to use unashamedly, uh, slanted language, the decline into pigwidgeonry and the return and all of this stuff, and I could probably make a, you know, a nice heroic arc out of that. Um, but I don't think that that would be, I think it would be misleading in the end. I think it would give a, a, a sloppy and inaccurate impression. And so I think in the end, it's, it's kind of more honest just to say we're not making any attempt at like continuous historical continuity. Now, we're just going to stop talking about medieval romance, and we're going to leap forward to the late Victorian era and look at some other fairy stories, uh, which were very popular and very influential, and the beginning of a kind of a new era, um, which we're then going to be spending most of the rest of our time studying, which is primarily the first half of the 20th century. Um, so that's my defense for skipping hundreds of years. Andrew Lang's fairy collections were extremely influential in the English-speaking world. Whenever anybody, for like 50 years at least, after Andrew Lang's collection referred to fairy stories, made allusions to fairy stories, um, it's primarily Andrew Lang that they're thinking of. Um, the Brothers Grimm, of course, have probably still the most famous collection of, 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 of these kinds of stories and these fairy tales. Um, but, of course, that's all perfectly convenient because Lang incorporates <laughs> most of the Brothers Grimm into his collection, too. Um, I don't want to spend too much time talking about Lang's own kind of perspective on things and his slant. You can see some of his slants already, and we'll see some things as we go along. When he edited these, he changed... Uh, details in many of the stories, um, and in some fairly systematic ways. One of the things that we can see, and you can see especially if you know the original versions, is that he tends to kind of scale back the violence and horror that often were in the original stories. Uh, for instance, has anyone ever read uh, other versions of the Cinderella story that end rather more gruesomely? Right, Stephanie, what happens? Um, when, the prince, well, when the prince's um, valet or whatever comes with the glass slipper to Cinderella's house, uh, it's either the stepmother convinces the sisters or the sisters take it upon themselves to cut off their toes and parts of their heel in an attempt to fit it in the shoe. But, of course, the blood gives it away that they did something. Right, exactly, yeah. The, 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 and it's hard even to imagine how we would think that the like voluminously gushing blood from your mutilated heel would not, like foul up the slipper-trying-on process. Um, yeah, so, I mean, they, 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 they mutilate themselves or are mutilated and, and often die in pain, um, and everybody else lives happily ever after because they were bad guys and are getting what they deserved in this. Um, Andrew Lang uh, cleans this up, right? We have them learn a very valuable lesson, and then they're taken off to court, and they're married off to dukes and live happily ever after as hopefully reformed characters. That's a pretty typical Andrew Lang kind of move. I'm not saying he does that all the time and with every story, but, but that's definitely one example of, of, of a kind of trend. However, I, mean, I, I don't, I don't want to get too wrapped up in this because, first of all, we're not going to have enough firsthand data for this. We'd have to read a heck of a lot more of his stories and their original versions to be able to see more of this kind of pattern. I just wanted to kind of point out that it's there um, 
But, but as I said, this is the, you know, when people refer to, you know, in, in English-speaking countries, when people refer to any of these stories later on, it's Andrew Lang that everyone's going to be thinking of. This is, this sort of, he has sort of established the paradigm, and his fairy books were really popular. He published them, you know, in their different colors. The blue fairy book was the first, and then we have um, many shades, more shades than the rainbow, uh, as he kept putting them out. The th- one thing that he did... Um, which was different from the Brothers Grimm in their attempt to collect together these stories and write them down. Both of them are doing the same thing in one sense. That is, there are these stories which exist and which have existed for a long time. None of them you know, are claiming to write things or do anything new, though Andrew Lang actually does compose several. Um, he doesn't fake it or anything. Yeah, he like, admits. Like, this, you know, he adds to the collection a few original stories by himself, which, like, fine, he can do that. Um, but... Um, but mostly, they're, both of them, both Lang and the Brothers Grimm, are collecting stories together. Lang set out to be a good deal more uh, cosmopolitan, not the right word, um, uh, Catholic with a small c, more universal. He gathered them from, like, he turned over every rock he could find in every like language and culture that he'd ever heard of to gather these stories together. And you'll see this get much more eclectic uh, as the volumes go on. If you go to the, uh, the website that the uh, that the stories are on that I linked you to, and you look at some of the tables of contents of especially the later uh, volumes, you'll see that he's gathering them from from all of the places he can find. The first volumes are sort of the more, the more standard ones, the more kind of typical ones, the French ones, the, the Brothers Grimm ones, and a few others, like Aladdin, which is from the Arabian Nights. All of those were sort of pretty famous, and the kinds of things and the kinds of sources people would think of right away uh, for these kinds of stories. Uh, later on, he gets a little, he sort of ranges a little further afield, which is very interesting. Um, sometimes he is really eclectic, like eclectic sort of to a fault, especially if we, and this is something that Tolkien takes up in On Fairy Stories and, and castigates Lang for, which is like, why on earth are some of these stories even in here under the rubric of fairy stories? Uh, and most famously, and I have to say it seems to me with perfect justice, uh, Tolkien takes Lang to task for including uh, in this volume a selection from Gulliver's Travels. I mean, he extracts and and collapses down um, Gulliver's journey to Lilliput um, as one of these fairy stories, and and Tolkien, I get very, I think, very sensibly, was like, look, there's nothing fairy story about Gulliver's travels. Like, it's just there's there's it's a completely different kind of story. Um, it's a traveler's tale and a satire. It's not a fairy story. Um, so, and that's, I think, is, seems to me perfectly right, and uh, uh, Ed Lang does that kind of thing on occasion. Um, but let's talk about the few. I encourage you to read more, by the way. Many of them are very short, and I don't want to suggest by, you know, listing three per class that, like, these are the only ones that I, you know, that I, that I insist that you restrict yourself to reading only these. Um, I just can't promise we'll have time to talk about many more. Um, in fact, if I keep talking like this, we're not going to have time to talk about any. So let's talk about <laughs> Sleeping Beauty. What struck you about Sleeping Beauty? You are now, uh, you're, you're, you're now very well trained. Your, 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 your fairy alarms should be pretty well calibrated. 
Um, what did you notice? This is, this, is, this, is, this is a different world in many ways from the medieval romances. Similarities, differences, oddnesses, what did you find? Robin? I noticed uh, the, the way they interacted, the way they interacted with the fairies was different from what we've read before. They seemed like, used to them, strong through their halls, and like, they expected them to come to the stuff. Yeah. But they see themselves like, I don't know, like individual, uh, sorry, um, Equals, in a sense, like, they come their parties, you come mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, there, there, I agree, there, there's, especially at the beginning of Sleeping Beauty, there's a kind of casualness to this, right? And in some ways, even more casualness in Cinderella. I mean, like, the fairy godmother comes in before we even, re- with absolutely no fanfare. It's like the opposite of fanfare, right? And so then her fairy godmother, who, by the way, exists, FYI, like, we're not even told this, like, approaches her and does this, and it's, like, not even worth remarking on, it seems, right? So I agree. And, and the, the whole invitation to the party, not only are they not, like, in all of the fairies when they show up and everything, but they, they there's this sense even of, open manipulation of them, right? Well, we know how the fairies are and how they work, so let's invite them in and make the, let's make them her godmothers, and so then they'll give her gifts, and that'll be awesome, right? I mean, it's almost like they're exploiting the fairies. Now, I don't want to ascribe to this king and queen, like, malicious desires or anything, but, I mean, they seem to know what they're doing there. And again, that's a completely different attitude, I agree. Yeah? Well, and if the king and queen feel that way, like, oh, let's give them gifts, well, the... the fairy that puts the curse on their daughter is almost in the same way. It's like, well, they didn't give me any golden silverware, so curse upon you. (laughs) Right, especially the the actual affront is so much. It's not even like, oh, they tried to exclude her or they left her out. It's just like they didn't have the really nice play setting for her when she showed up because they didn't think she was going to show up. Right, so because she doesn't have the golden setting, she decides to, to curse them. The lack... The lack of an antagonist in this story that is pre-Ogress mother-in-law, <laughs> concerning which more later, uh, is interesting, right? That is, they, the, the fairy who lays the curse on the princess doesn't seem especially evil. She's reclusive, right, I guess. Though we don't even know exactly what was going on. They thought she might be dead or something. But anyway, she shows up unexpectedly. Um, and the other fairy, the one who hides behind the curtain, suspects that she's going to lay a curse on her. But again, it doesn't seem to be like, because she's so evil, it's just, well, she's offended. And, you know, fairies get offended like they will do stuff like that, right? Um, yeah, it's, as you say, both sides seem to kind of understand and accept that. Yeah, Will? Um, the first thing I noticed about is that it seems sort of like self-aware of, of like of the of the tropes, kind of like like what needed to happen. Like it reads to, it reads like satire, almost. Like when you're talking about the old fairy, they're like, I didn't know it's here for fifty years because she was in the tower and they thought she was dead or check or something. Right, right. Like it, it's it's it seems funny. Right. Yeah, they assumed that one of these things must have. I guess she probably enchanted or something. Locked up in a tower, you know how it goes. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. It's a sort of a regular part of the landscape. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it has that kind of tone. 
Kelly, did you want to say? Um, I, I was just thinking forward to how, you know, the castle is, you know, the forest grows over it, and everyone in town starts, you know, the, the memory fades, and they have all these crazy ideas about something really evil going on in this forest castle. Um, homogenation. Homogenization. Um, and then there's the the one the one old coot who you know who preserves this pearl of knowledge and gives it to the prince. Yeah, yeah, and that's. It is interesting to see. Of course, fairies aren't evil or assumed to be evil. Ogres, however, yeah, yeah, ogres are evil. And eat children. Even when they try to reform, they can't help it, right? And eventually they'll bust out and eat children, especially their in-laws. Uh, um, so, yeah, so it is interesting that instead of saying, like, ooh, there's a fairy castle, or even changing it around so that it sounds more like the Disney version, that is, there is an evil fairy who has, who has tried to wall this off and prevent it from... No, it's just... Uh, that's not the way the story goes. Instead, the fairies and everything else is forgotten entirely, and it's just, oh, there must be an ogre in there who sneaks out to eat children. Yeah, Jordan? The, uh, the fairy who is excluded, she really seems pretty mundane and petty. Like, you, you can almost see her as that stereotypical crazy cat lady. She just seems really like, not all there, and she's describing the world. Yes, I agree. Even the description of her as old is interesting. Right? I mean, Morgan Le Fay appeared old in Sir Berdoac's castle, but we get the general sense, at least I get the general sense, that that was probably a disguise. Um, you know, so the idea of a fairy actually aging, I mean, even like the tossed-off reference to the fact that she might be dead um, is kind of interesting. I mean, we've never really seen that before. Um, I mean, it's certainly, goodness knows, if we go back to something like Sir Orfeo, um, or, or remembering, you know, the Green Knight's relationship to his decapitated head, um, we have not seen fairies be very concerned about death before, um, or, or even to have, in some sense, a kind of, it might be too strong to say, a power over it, but certainly um, a different relationship with it, remembering the courtyard in the fairy king's castle in Orfeo, and um, and Gowan's remark to the Green Knight when the Green Knight is taunting him for flinching. Um, when the, remember, the Green Knight is taunting him and saying, like, well, when you swung the axe at me, did I flinch? No, I didn't. And Gowan's like, well, yeah, no, but um, you know what? I can't pick my head back up either. So, like, you had a bit of an advantage there, Mr. Like, I'm really brave because I know it's not going to kill me no matter what happens. Like, I don't have that assurance. So, um, anyway, we're reminded that there's this, there's this different relationship. But here, it's not obvious that it's the same as with humans, but it certainly is in that category. Um, they are just more like people. I was going to say that the fairies are almost um, benevolent now. They come, they give gifts, they seem really kind of sweet. Like, there's the one who has a grudge. But it's not like in everything else we've seen, sort of up to here, where they appear out of nowhere, they have their own mysterious motives. They seem to be more tricksters previously. Yeah. They're certainly not inscrutable in this story. Um, not as in Orfeo, for instance. Um, or, even, or even in L'Enfant. 
Um, yeah, yeah. These stories are much more comfortable with the fairies. We don't get any fantastic riches, astonishing beauty, or astonishing ugliness. Um, we don't get that same sense of you are coming into contact with something which completely transcends humankind. Uh, you know, the least servant in whose court is more beautiful than the... You know, we don't get any of that kind of sense here. Uh, they're powerful. They can do stuff. You have to be careful because if they get offended, they might do something bad with their power or something unpleasant to you anyway. Um, but they're not other, with a capital O, in the same way that they were. What else? Notice the ogress is not inscrutable either. Right? I mean, she does what she does. I mean, if the king comes home, and of course he comes home in the middle of an awkward moment, right? But like, with, I love the vat of toads and snakes and stuff. It's like my favorite execution mechanism ever. Um, <laughs> I, I, like, not even a James Bond villain ever came up with something, like, as <laughs> implausible as that, uh, as elaborate as that. But anyway, so, so uh, but you get, sort of get the impression that if, if, if the prince, now the king, comes home and is like, Mom, Mom, you ate my wife and kids. <laughs> that her answer is going to be something like, Ogress, sorry, I mean... <laughs> What do you want? They were tasty. I'm an ogress. And we're told, there's like this, even this kind of conflict within her. She doesn't seem especially to want to do. She sort of fights against this impulse, we're told, until he goes away, and then she's like, I can't take it anymore. And, and, and I love, I just, I can't stop laughing with the emphasis on the sauce. Cook them up with sauce, right? <laughs> I, it's just, there's something just delightful about that. But anyway, um, uh, and, 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 and with the same, like she's complimenting him on his cookery. Like, oh, the sauce with the, w- w- with the girl, mm, it was fantastic. I had the same sauce on the boy, too. That would be absolutely delightful. Um, she, she's an ogress. She can't help it it seems. She, too, although that part of the story is weird, and I know the first time I ever read that part of the story, it felt like a kind of an out-of-body experience. Like, why does, you know, Mr. Prince Charming, nameless dude, have an ogre for a mom who's eating his... Like, I thought this story was done. Why are we still reading a story right now? And, and then, well, I, mean, it just, it's, I mean, it seems really strange. But again, from within this story, if you accept all this, Nothing happens that's exactly unpredictable. In fact, it's exactly predictable. So, in the end, we, get, I, we just get like an extra moral to this story, right? Don't marry ogresses, even if they're very rich. Bad stuff will happen. Another moment that I thought was kind of odd in that similar way is that, um, you know, the king says, nobody have spindles near my daughter. No one, no one. Oh, by the way, I forgot about that lady up there who happened to be weaving. Oh, oh, that's a shame. Now she's asleep. And it's not... I mean, I, I, again, I don't want to... I don't want um, to just kind of harp on the Disney movies, but they serve to, re- to highlight some really interesting aspects of this story, by contrast, I think. <laughs> that, as you'll remember, if you've seen Sleeping Beauty any time in the last decade... 
you'll remember that the whole spindle thing is like, like we have an antagonist. The evil fairy is genuinely evil and trying to bring about the death of Sleeping Beauty and you know, that she, like, has, makes this almost, like, she, like, conjures a spinning wheel, right, out of nowhere, whereas here it's just, it's just, and, and, you know, you've got that scene where she's, like, put, you know, Sleeping Beauty into a trance, right, and she's, she goes forward until she, until she pricks her hand. This is just, like, a random thing, like, oh, yeah, they forgot that one spinning wheel that, you know, this perfectly innocent and innocuous old woman up there is, <laughs> is spinning on it, and it just, you know, just happens. Just happens. Not fate. It's not a plot. It's just, you know, oh well. It does seem to be part of a prediction made by the by the not evil but kind of irritated fairy uh, who leveled it in the first place. Um, I have to let you go. We will we will be thinking. We'll continue thinking about. Cinderella and Aladdin in connection with our stories for next time as well. And we'll do some more spinning as well in our next stories. All right. For the next class, you should review Lang's Rumpelstiltskin, Beauty and the Beast, and Hansel and Gretel. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.